welcome to Forecast, the Foreshadow podcast, seeking glimpses of heaven on earth through conversations about people's lives and work. I'm Josh, the editor of Foreshadow, a digital literary magazine of work that points to the kingdom of God. Today we continue our series of mining the book Thomas Merton on the Vocation of Writing, edited by Robert Inchowski. Last week, we explored Chapter 2, Writing as a Spiritual Calling. Be sure to listen to that if you haven't already. This week, we look at Chapter 3, On Poetry. But first, some news. This will be our last episode of the 2021 season. We'll take a month break for Christmas and plan to return in the middle of January. We will also take a break from posting content such as poetry and nonfiction on Foreshadow Magazine. The main reason for this is that my wife is due to give birth early next year, so this will hopefully, hopefully give me some time to prepare for that big and exciting change. Next year, the theme for Foreshadow and also for Forecast will be Called Forth, Vocation and Christian Faith. If you've been following our work for a while, you may already recognize this theme in the magazine and podcast. If you look back at some of the previous podcast episodes, most of them have involved the vocation of various people, whether they are doctors or artists or um, other uh, people in other professions. And this has also been clear in this series on Thomas Merton, in which we've been looking at various dimensions of vocation, such as the universal call to follow Christ and be transformed in him, religious vocations like being ordained or being lay people, vocations such as marriage or parenthood, and even artistic, and especially in this case artistic or prophetic vocations. Our guiding questions are, who are we called to become and what are we called to do? So that's the theme for next year. And we are currently open for submissions, so do send in any writing or other work that contribute to this conversation. We really hope that a variety of genres and styles of writing, art, and music will help to deepen this dimension and our understanding of what it means to be called and what our purpose is as individuals and as groups. Now for Thomas Merton. To review from last time, in chapter 2, Merton describes how the Christian who writes must maintain integrity in order to prophetically witness to the truth. In so doing, the writer also restores language, freeing people from false depictions of reality. Merton also writes that the heart of communication is communion. Here in chapter 3, to briefly overview, Merton writes about the humility required to write poetry, as well as the importance of writing to the best of one's ability. Merton also describes the nature of poetry and the importance of symbol and meaning, especially in our time where symbol and meaning are lacking. Finally, Merton describes the necessity of a Christian poet to also be a contemplative, that is, someone who seeks union with God. So we'll begin by looking at some of the journal entries that are found in, um, in this book. Merton writes, 
When Blake said some of his work, and when he's saying Blake, he means William Blake, the poet, English poet. When Blake said some of his work was dictated by angels, he did not mean that because all other poetry was merely written by men, his was superior to theirs. On the contrary, he meant that all good poetry was dictated by angels and that he himself could not claim any praise for his verses. They were not really his. And then a little bit later, Merton writes, Blake's statement was not one of pride, but one of humility, because, as it happened, he believed in angels. And then later on, The poet's humility is to write in fear and trembling, as he said to Samuel Palmer, if I have the reference right, and that he must. Here we see a theme that will emerge again later in this chapter of the poet being in dialogue with God, with angels, with this inspiration that comes from beyond the poet and responding to that dialogue in the creative process. But what really jumped out at me at hearing these words is the not only the humility that Merton writes is important, but that this echoes something that author Madeleine Lengel also writes about the creative process. And this is from Madeleine Lengel's book, Walking on Water, Reflections on Faith and Art. Lengel also writes about angels, and she gives the example of the angel Gabriel visiting Mary, the Virgin Mary, and telling her that she has this um, uh, challenging, perhaps, but uh, glorious task of bearing and being the mother of God and being the mother of God in human form, Jesus. And so Mary responds with obedience, with humble obedience. And this is what Lengel writes about obedience. Obedience is an unpopular word nowadays, but the artist must be obedient to the work, whether it be a symphony, a painting, or a story for a small child. I believe that each work of art, whether it is a work of great genius or something very small, comes to the artist and says, Here I am, enflesh me, give birth to me. And the artist either says, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and willingly becomes the bearer of the work, or refuses. But the obedient response is not necessarily a conscious one, and not everyone has the humble, courageous obedience of Mary. So whether, like Merton is saying, for William Blake, the inspiration comes from angels or from God, or whether, like in Lengel's writing, the inspiration comes perhaps from somewhere within, the response that both give is the, the response that both say we should give is one of humility and one of magnifying the Lord through our response, through following that leading and creating and doing whatever we are called to do in the context of creating something. Lengel also describes the act of creating something as ultimately an act of service to the work, and as a result, serving humanity and um, through obeying and following this calling. I know that we are discussing Merton and not Lengel, but this ties into what Merton will write later on, and so I'll read something else that Lengel has written. When the artist is truly the servant of the work, the work is better than the artist. Shakespeare knew how to listen to his work, and so he often wrote better than he could write, 
Bach composed more deeply, more truly than he knew. Rembrandt's brush put more of the human spirit on canvas than Rembrandt could comprehend. When the work takes over, then the artist is enabled to get out of the way, not to interfere. When the work takes over, then the artist listens. But before he can listen, paradoxically, he must work. Getting out of the way and listening is not something that comes easily, either in art or in prayer. So basically, she's describing an act of listening to the work, and the work teaching the artist deeper things than the artist could have done if they weren't listening. And she also describes that this is something that happens not only in art, but also in prayer. That prayer is also about listening to God and listening for the leading of God and responding accordingly to that leading, not just bringing before God our wants and our desires, although that's part of it, but more importantly, stilling our minds and our hearts to listen to what God's will is. And Merton will later on also connect the creative process with the praying process. And so this attitude of creating in the context of a wider realm of listening for the inspiration that comes when creating is carried on, uh, picked up in another journal entry that Merton writes. Um, and he writes, What is one thing all poets need to know? They need to be reminded of their nearness to the saints, just as everybody has to be reminded of this. To do anything good in the world, you have to renounce the world in order to do that thing. You have to love it and give it your whole life. The reason there are so few good Catholic poets is the same as the reason why there are so few Catholics, of the educated classes anyway, that have really shown a great desire for saintliness. We are all mediocre, indifferent, concerned with trivialities or small questions of pride, or are drawn into various political traps. Many men of good intentions are trapped into fascism because they think they can serve God with political crusades before they have given everything to the poor and taken up their spiritual crosses of poverty and humiliation before men. I think there are two main things that I see in what Merton is saying here. The first is that the reason that there are no or not many good Christian, I'm broadening it out to Christian poets, is because Christians have lost a desire for saintliness. And by saintliness, that's this desire for union with God, for holiness, for transfer transformation. And Merton compares saintliness with mediocrity. And so he's saying that we need excellence in our spiritual walk. We need to commit everything we have to this journey we are on in following Christ. And when we do that, that will also make its way into the art of people who are also poets. And for him, I think the key, one of the important keys in writing good poetry and in this journey of saintliness is recognizing what he says as the, our nearness to the saints. I think what he means by that is that we are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, that these Christians who have gone before us, who are with God, united with Christ now, are watching us and are praying for us and are with us. And our awareness of this can help us um, understand 
the bigger picture of what's going on, that our reality is not just what we can see and touch and taste as important and crucial as that is, but there's this other dimension that we can't see, but is still there, and that fills this universe and is calling this universe towards Christ. And so by being aware of that deeper dimension, we are orienting ourselves in the direction that can make us better, can make us more whole, and can help us fulfill our calling to join in Christ's work of making things new. Related to this, Merton also writes about the importance for excellence in writing as a form of witness uh, to other people of God. To be specific, he, in his other writing called New Seeds of Contemplation, he writes, A Catholic poet should be an apostle by, first, by being first of all a poet, not try to be a poet by being first of all an apostle. For if he pre presents himself to people as a poet, he is going to be judged as a poet, and if he is not a good one, his apostolate will be ridiculed. This resembles something else that Madeleine Lengel has written in Walking on Water. She's written, If it's bad art, it's bad religion, no matter how pious the subject. In other words, Christians who write are called to write the best we can. If we write sloppily, and this applies in any field, I believe, whether it's, whether it's writing or whether it's someone is a, a doctor or nurse or if someone is a builder, that if we do our work sloppily, that doesn't only affect the people that receive our work, but it also affects our witness as Christians. Because what people see first in us oftentimes is our work, our profession, our occupation, and the dedication that we put into that says many things about our faith and about our priorities and what we find important. And if we, if we don't do a good job of presenting ourselves well in that regard, we're not also representing Christ well. But if we do our best work and if we, do, if we ex excel in that, that also carries a good word for Christ and perhaps open up, opens up doors for witnessing and, and evangelism. Even if we haven't mentioned Christ's name, we can begin to pave a road in people's hearts towards Christ by the quality of work we do. And so for the Christian who writes, specifically for the Christian poet, what is the work that they are doing? What is poetry? Merton goes on to describe this in quite some detail, and we'll look at that next. In this writing from Poetry, Symbolism, and Typology, published in 1953. Merton writes, The psalms are poems, and poems have a meaning, although the poet has no obligation to make his meaning immediately clear to anyone who does not want to make an effort to discover it. But to say that poems have meaning is not to say that they must necessarily convey practical information or an explicit message. In poetry, words are ch charged with meaning in a far different way than are the words in a piece of scientific prose. The words of a poem 
are not merely the signs of concepts. They are also rich in affective and spiritual associations. That's affective and spiritual associations. The poet uses words not merely to make declarations, statements of fact. That is usually the last thing that concerns him. He seeks above all to put words together in such a way that they exercise a mysterious and vital reactivity among themselves and so release their secret content of associations to produce in the reader an experience that enriches the depths of his spirit in a manner quite unique. A good poem induces an experience that could not be produced by any other combination of words. It is therefore an entity that stands by itself, graced with an individuality that marks it off from every other work of art. Like all great works of art, true poems seem to live a life entirely, live by a life entirely their own. What we must seek in a poem is therefore not an accidental reference to something outside itself. We must seek this inner principle of individuality and of life which is its soul or form. What the poem actually means can only be summed up in the whole content of poetic experience which it is capable of producing in the reader. This total poetic experience is what the poet is trying to communicate to the rest of the world. This is a really powerful description of poetry, and there are so many things to say about this, but I won't, I won't try to mine all of it. But one thing that comes to mind is, to illustrate what he's saying, is when I was in university, I, was, I took a fiction writing class. And interestingly, unlike most writing classes which took place in the, the, the literature, journalism, and modern languages building, this class, for some reason, was held in a chemistry lab. And maybe there wasn't room in the um, literature building, and so they needed to find another room. But um, so our classroom was in a lit in a chemistry lab. Um, I think next to the blackboard there might have been some beakers and um, uh, syringes and some other equipment. That's just at least what I can see in my memory. And my professor, who who um, who is a who's also a poet himself, one of the things he taught us in this fiction class was the importance of divergent thinking and making connections that are not often made. And so I remember thinking, what's the connection between writing fiction and chemistry? And Merton actually seems to be making that same connection here with some of the words he uses, such as vital reactivity and release their secret content of associations to produce in the reader an experience that enriches I think the connection between writing and chemistry, as Merton has already described, is that in chemistry, from my, from my little knowledge of it, it's about how different molecules and compounds, um, chemicals, how they react with one another, and the kinds of results and the kinds of effects that such a reaction has. For example, if you mix potassium with water or K with H2O, 
the potassium dissolves in the water. Or if you mix sodium metal with chlorine gas under the right condi uh, conditions, you get salt. And it's the same thing with poetry, Merton's saying, that if you mix certain words together, then you get certain reactions in the mind of the reader that in themselves are experiences that could not happen any other way except through that specific combination of words that the poet strings together. So more than just describing a past event, what a, a writer and a poet is doing is also creating a new event, a new experience that exists on the page and within the mind of the reader. And this experience, while it may have some similarities among various readers, every reader will also bring to that poem a new set of experiences through which to understand it. And depending on what time of their life they are reading it, they might have different experiences at different times of their life that they have when reading the poem based on new experiences they've gained. And so what Merton writes at the end of the passage I read, what the poem actually means can only be summed up in the whole content of poetic experience, which it is capable of producing in the reader, means that, at least as I understand it, a poem's meaning can never be fully exhausted because every time there's a new generation of readers or every time someone revisits a poem or even a psalm or another work of art, they're going to have new meanings that, and new events that take place when they interact with and when they read the poem. And so the meaning of a poem only grows and expands when it has more readers and has more time to kind of live through the human experience. And so the words themselves become very important in poetry because every word has its own unique connotation and history that can spark a reaction in a reader that no other word could do. The poet Scott Cairns illustrates this well in his essay in the book A Syllable of Water, 20 faith Writers of Faith Reflect on Their Art. And Cairns writes that unlike other genres of writing, poetry is not primarily about ideas or emotions, but it's about the very words themselves, how they interact with each other, how they sound, and the meanings that they bring up. Cairns writes, Poetry, the originating pulse of literary undertaking, is understood to be concerned primarily with the art of language itself. Poems, therefore, draw attention to words themselves, words as such. I recently read a poem that I want to share. It's a short poem, and I think it illustrates well this um, expression of words reacting together and um, the, the poet playing with language and putting words together intentionally to create a variety of meanings, um, not to suggest that the meaning cannot be ascertained, but to suggest that there are so many avenues through which one can interpret and understand a poem and, and glean new insights from what a poem is saying. And I think if you read the poem yourself, then you'll gain many more insights. I think perhaps it's difficult to express it through just one reading, but I'd like to just illustrate anyway. It's a poem called No Omen But Awe, 
by Christian Wyman that was published uh, last month in Plough Quarterly magazine. I thought it would all resolve one day in diamond time. Life like a gem to lift to the squint as through a jeweler's loop. I thought every facet and flaw neither facet nor flaw in some final shine. Chance and choice, uncanny cognates, form, fate. Now I am here. No diamond, no time, no omen, but all. That a whirlwind could, in not cohering, cohere. Loss is my gift, bewilderment my bow. I don't know what Wyman intended by that poem. There's a lot of mystery to it, but what grabbed me the first time I read it was especially that word whirlwind in the last stanza, because it is out of the whirlwind that God speaks to Job. And so that made me think of this poem as written from the perspective of Job, where he says, I thought it would all resolve one day in diamond time. In other words, Job thought it would all make sense, that he could get all of his answers, all of his questions answered by God or by his friends. Then he says later, I thought every facet and flaw neither facet nor flaw in some final shine. In other words, Job thought that everything would somehow resolve one day, that everything would find its proper place in the end. But we know from the story of Job that his questions aren't answered. He, is, he does find some resolution, but it's not as he expected. It comes from a direct encounter with God, with the mystery of God who doesn't provide answers about to Job's questions. He doesn't explain why good people suffer or why Job himself is suffering. But God opens up more mysteries. And yet, in doing so, Job finds resolution. And so I think that's what it means in this poem, that a whirlwind could, in not cohering, cohere. That somehow, in being mysterious, a mystery is explained, or if not explained, a mystery is revealed, and, and a question is resolved, even though more questions are raised. And then the last line, loss is my gift, bewilderment my bow, that he's, he's able to find a gift in what he's experienced, and he's able to, to resolve his questions through being aware of this mystery. So I see two key images in this poem. The whirlwind, which I think represents the mystery of God. And then there's the diamond, um, where, he, where he, the narrator says, I thought it would all resolve one day in diamond time. And I think that means in this glimmering, um, beautiful realm where everything makes sense. But at the end, he says, now I'm here, no diamond, no time. 
So what he thought would be there in in this, what he thought he would be given as a solution um, is different than he expected. And he's in this place beyond time, beyond fancy images that he thought would be there, and in this place of awe. Those two images of the diamond and whirlwind become symbols, as I've expressed, especially through the word whirlwind, because of the meaning behind whirlwind that one can trace in other forms of literature, such as the Book of Job. And this leads to the next segment of Merton's writing in Poetry, Symbolism, and Topology, where he mourns the loss of such symbols and images in our modern society. He writes, Light and darkness, sun and moon, stars and planets, trees, beasts, whales, fish, and birds of the air, all these things in the world around us and the whole natural economy in which they have their place have impressed themselves upon the spirit of man in such a way that they naturally tend to mean to him much more than they mean in themselves. That is why, for example, they enter so mysteriously into the substance of our poetry, of our visions, and of our dreams. That too is why an age, like the one we live in, in which cosmic symbolism has been almost forgotten and submerged under a tidal wave of trademarks, political party buttons, advertising and propaganda slogans, and all the rest, is necessarily an age of mass psychosis, a world in which the poet can find practically no material in the common substance of everyday life, and in which he is driven crazy in his search for the vital symbols that have been buried alive under a mountain of cultural garbage, can only end up, like ours, in self-destruction. I have found this to be a very powerful passage, and it's made me think a lot about the symbols and the objects and the items that surround us, and that, because they surround us, form an impression in our minds and add to the meaning that we as individuals and as hu the human race give to such symbols. It's made me reflect on the various places I've lived, specifically the cities I've lived in versus the more rural places where I've lived. For example, we lived in Manchester, England for two years, and if I think about the symbols that surrounded us, I, I, well, some of the first things I think about are the buses and the busy streets and even the billboards that would change every few months and some of the images that I would remember from those billboards. And Merton re reflects that, where he, where he writes about the tidal wave of trademarks, political party, party buttons, advertising, and propaganda slogans. And comparing that to some more rural places where I've lived, such as where I'm living now, where we're living in northwest England, where, um, in, where I'm surrounded by um, fields, hills that are brown with bracken and green with grass, um, dotted with sheep or with cows, and how much more meaning there is in those symbols than in the ones that I would see on billboards, such as 
plastic bottles of drinks or um, a bar of chocolate. Just the comparing the the meaning and, and the 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 significant significance of that, and because a lot of my work, most of my work during the day is um, done on the computer. Similarly, the kinds of symbols I'm surrounded with through the work that I do doesn't have the same depth and quality of life as it would be for someone whose work is outside, such as a farmer, um, being surrounded by the wind and noticing the the subtle changes every day in the light or in the in the leaves. I think a poet needs, and this is what Merton is saying, a poet needs to be surrounded by symbols and to draw upon symbols that are life-giving and and otherwise the poet's work if it reflects a world that is um, shallow then the poet's work itself will be shallow and I don't think this is to say that no good poet will come from a city that would be too simplistic I think the challenge for people in cities and for poets in cities is to find those symbols that have meaning and depth, but there might, they might have to look a lot harder than someone who's surrounded by a more natural environment. When I was in university, I enrolled in a, a summer course called Urban Term, where we were, uh, about 11 or 12 students and I were living together in um, a densely urban part of San Diego, and also taking classes and um, interning at various organizations. And one of our activities during this program was traveling to Los Angeles and visiting various organizations. And one of the things we did during our trip there was go on a, a walking tour of a, a, a part of Los Angeles. And I think that activity was called exegeting the city or interpreting the signs that we saw in the city. And our tour guide, you might call him, I remember him describing what he calls signs of life. And these were the same things that Merton is describing. These were deep symbols that people would have in a place where there may not be many deep symbols. And, and he said you can often find these things on people's windowsills, such as pots of plants or, um, or even things like a, a, the flag of a country where they come from that these symbols that people often use to decorate their homes with are not just forms of decoration to make a place look better, but also symbols that convey deep meaning about a person's identity and what a person values. And so I think these things can be found in cities and anywhere. They're more difficult to find in cities, but um, we have to keep our eyes out looking for these symbols of life and these signs of life and as a poet um, that's the, that's the poet's currency or um, that's the the source of their language and for the for the words they they choose and so a good and effective poet is one who knows the meaning of these symbols and can use it well and put it in arrange it in an effective way so that when it's combined with various other words and symbols, it creates a powerful uh, effect in the reader's mind, an experience that is transformative.
This leads to the next topic of Merton's writing, and it raises the question of how a poet uses their ability to write, because I've been describing some positive ways that a poet can use it, but of course there's the other side. A poet can be skilled in writing words and can create a poem that actually is manipulative, that uses these things for destructive ends. And Merton has described this in the previous chapter especially, if you listened to that episode on chapter 2, how propaganda and advertising often distorts reality and, um, and diminishes our understanding of reality by using the same techniques that poets use, which is arranging words and symbols together. So how do we, how do we know if a poem is, is wholesome? How can poets um, themselves create things that are life-giving rather than life-deprecating? I think what Merton would say is more than just having the ability to write, the poet needs a transformed and sacramental vision. And so that's what he will describe next. In his work, Poetry and Contemplation, a reappraisal, Merton writes, The Christian's vision of the world ought, by its very nature, to have in it something of poetic inspiration. Our faith ought to be capable of filling our hearts with a wonder and a wisdom which see beyond the surface of things and events, and grasp something of the inner and sacred meaning of the cosmos, which, in all its movements and all its aspects, sings of the praises of its Creator and Redeemer. No Christian poetry worthy of the name has been written by anyone who was in not some degree a contemplative. I say in some degree because, obviously, not all Christian poets are mystics. But the true poet is always akin to the mystic because of the prophetic intuition by which he sees the spiritual reality, the inner meaning of the object he contemplates, which makes that concrete reality not only a thing worthy of admiration in itself, but also, and above all, makes it a sign of God. All good Christian poets are then contemplatives in the sense that they see God everywhere in cre his creation and in his mysteries, and behold the created world as filled with signs and symbols of God. To the true Christian poet, the whole world and all the incidents of life tend to be sacraments, signs of God, signs of his love working in the world. However, the mere fact of having this contemplative vision of God in the world around us does not necessarily make a man a great poet. One must, not, one must be not a seer, but also and especially a creator, a maker. Poetry is an art, a natural skill, a virtue of the practical intellect, and no matter how great a subject we may have in the experience of contemplation, we will not be able to put it into words if we do not have the proper command of our medium. This is true. But let us assume that a man already has this natural gift. If the inspiration is helpless without a correspondingly effective technique, technique is barren without inspiration.
This adds a deeper dimension to Merton's describing the Christian writer as a prophet, in that the Christian writer is also a contemplative. What he's saying is that it's not enough for a poet to be skilled at writing. The poet must also be able to see this deeper dimension, must be able to have this um, journey and this, this search for union with God and this ability to be oriented towards God. But of course, that's not to diminish the, the ability to write, because without such an ability to write, any efforts that the poet makes at trying to describe and witness to that deeper reality will fall short and will not succeed. So the Christian poet needs to have both in balance. And where does this contemplative vision lead the poet? It leads the poet to Christ. As Merton writes, Christ is the inspiration of Christian poetry, and Christ is at the center of the contemplative life. But then Merton writes that the poet does not have to enter a monastery to be a better poet. He says, on the contrary, what we need are contemplatives outside the cloister and outside the rigidly fixed patterns of religious life. Contemplatives in the world of art, letters, education, and even politics. This means a solid integration of one's work, thought, religion, and family life, and recreations, recreations in one vital, harmonious unity with Christ at its center. I think this is a helpful model for this question we have at Foreshadow about vocation more broadly, and it can apply not only to poetry but to pretty much any field, that Christ is at the center, and what is required is Christians who are seeking Christ, um, seeking union with Christ, which is basically what, have, what a contemplative is. And, and such a journey integrates one's work, their thought, their religion, their family life, and their recreations in one vital harmonious unity with Christ at its center. So to answer the question, who are we called to become? What are we called to do? Perhaps Merton might say, we are called to become people for whom Christ is at our center, and we are called to love Christ and to love our neighbor as ourselves, as Christ taught us. But then how we do that is where more interesting questions come, and how we do that as writers and as poets, and that's what Merton is addressing. But to be effective Christian poets, then, as he said earlier, it's not enough to learn and study the craft of writing poetry, as essential as that is, but one must go deeper and be a contemplative. One must be aware of, of the nearness we have to the saints, to the heavenly realm, and one must be oriented towards God. And in so pursuing this life of holiness, this life of prayer, this life of union with God, that will transform the poet's work and poetry so that their work itself can not only be excellent on the level of, of writing, which it needs to be, but can also point other people to God through the signs and symbols it uses, signs that don't only point to themselves, but that point beyond themselves to God and his love in the world. 
as I believe Christian Wyman's poem, which I read earlier, does effectively through the sign of the whirlwind pointing to the mystery of God. This interplay between heaven and earth, between the uncreated realm of God and the created world and universe, echoes what I recently read in a book by the author and chaplain and poet and theologian Malcolm Geitz, Lifting the Veil, Imagination and the Kingdom of God. He, he writes, All great art is a bridge with one foot in the world of comprehension, the visible, the earth, and one in the realm of apprehension, the invisible heaven. And so for him, great art is a bridge between heaven and earth, with one foot planted in each. And I think that's a helpful way to understand what Merton is saying, that the poet, too, has to have one foot in each world um, with their vision towards heaven, but then their their writing has to convey that through tangible symbols that people um, understand and live with. How can the Christian poet cultivate this contemplative vision? I don't have uh, many answers to this question, but one place that I think about is in the writing of Eugene Peterson, his book called The Contemplative Pastor. I read this a few years ago as in one of my courses, and one of the main things I remember from the book is Eugene Peterson's description of the importance of prayer and using the middle voice in the Greek language. This middle voice is in opposition to the active and the passive voices. And Peterson uses the example of the word counsel. When one says, I counsel my friend, they are using the active voice. When they say, I am counseled by my friend, this is using the passive voice. But the middle voice would be to say, I take counsel. There is um, interplay between an activity that one is doing, an active role, I take, but then the passive aspect comes in the fact that what one is taking is counsel or advice from someone else. And so there is a dance between taking initiative and also receiving from someone else. Peterson writes, Prayer and spirituality feature participation, the complex participation of God and the human, his will and our wills. We do not abandon ourselves to the stream of grace and drown in the ocean of love, losing our identity. We do not pull the strings that activate God's operations in our lives, subjecting God to our assertive identity. We neither manipulate God, active voice, nor are manipulated by God, passive voice. We are involved in the action and participate in its results, but do not control or define it. Middle voice. Prayer takes place in the middle voice. So maybe one way we can, or Christian poets can, become contemplatives, become contemplative poets, is by using this image of the middle voice. By maybe another word to say it would just be spiritual formation and um, discipleship. 
in discipleship, as I understand it, we are following Christ. And, and that's also an example of the middle voice because it takes it requires participation and action on our part on our part following but we are following someone else's leading that's the leading of Christ and that's the passive aspect that we are being led but it's not a passively it's not a we're not passively following we're actively following we um, set aside time for prayer or for worship just as one sets aside time to exercise, maybe do some walking regularly or running. Um, if someone is a writer, they might take aside time to um, to practice their writing and make sure that they don't lose their writing muscles. In the same way, contemplatives put aside time to engage with God, to listen to God. And this listening has both active and passive elements to it. Active in the sense of our full attention is required. We need to attend also to our, how we're um, posturing ourselves, making sure there's no distractions. But then there is a, an element of resting and uh, listening and waiting, which is beyond our efforts and our control. And so this combination, this synthesis, is described by Peterson as the middle voice and is one key to contemplation. Such a stance is described by Merton later on in this work when he writes, The most perfect choice is the choice of what God has willed for us, even though it may be, in itself, less perfect and indeed less spiritual. Merton writes this in the context of the tension between the mystic and the poet, how, he, as he writes, the poet must enter himself to write poetry, whereas the mystic must enter into God to experience that union with God. And that tension there that Merton has described earlier, if you listen to the very first episode of this series um, on chapter one of this book on Thomas Merton, you'll hear a bit more of that tension. Well, Merton picks up on that again here. And he talks about how Either way, what the, the individual must do is ultimately to follow what God is calling them to do. And so, in the context of the middle voice, the, perfect, the most perfect choice any one of us can make is choosing that which God has already chosen for us. And that, so that involves activity on our part, our choosing, but it also involves a receptivity on our part because we're choosing what God has chosen for us. Similar to Jesus' words on the night before his crucifixion, not my will, but yours be done. He voluntarily lays down his will to follow God's will. And that echoes what Lengel writes, as I um, said at the beginning of this episode, about obedience. We often think of obedience as a passive activity. But in this context, and in the context of the Virgin Mary being obedient to God's will and um, accepting God's will, it required a lifetime of dedication to God in order to get to that point where she then voluntarily accepted God's will for her. She had the choice to reject 
what the angel Gabriel had said she was called to do. But she chose to obey, and she chose to follow God's will for her. And, and so that attitude, I think, is another example of the attitude of the contemplative, where they are actively engaged in being receptive to God's working and God's will in their life. And so what Merton is describing here is that the, in, the, in this tension between whether a poet is, chooses the life of the mystic or the life of the poet, what they must ultimately do is choose what God has called them to do. And if that means being a poet, it might seem less spiritual than being a contemplative or than being a mystic, um, but that's what they must do because that's what God is calling them to do. Well, that wraps up our exploration into this chapter today on poetry. There are three more chapters in the book. The next one is called On Other Writers, and that's followed by On His Own Writing. That's Merton's own writing. And then the last chapter is Advice to Writers. So I do hope that we will be able to finish this exploration next year. And I also hope to continue having fascinating conversations with a variety of people on their faith and their vocations, their work, their identities, as, we, as Will and I have done this past year in Forecast. Thank you to those of you who, over the past few weeks, have given feedback about the podcast and other work on Foreshadow. It's really great to hear from you, so do get in touch by emailing me at foreshadowmagazine at gmail.com. And you can also visit foreshadowmagazine.com to read new writings and listen to other work posted every week. Do share our work with anyone who you think would enjoy and appreciate it. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram as well. So do connect with us if you can. I wish all of you a blessed Advent and Christmas season. And God willing, I look forward to continuing this exploration of calling with you in the new year through foreshadow and forecast. Thanks for listening. That's the forecast for today.